Um, either way, my two goals today in, in talking about this is, one, to just encourage people in here who are believers to remember that God is still saving people. Uh, if you, you can probably, you know, see all the stuff going on with Kanye West, remember that, but I want you to look, hear the story and remember that with me too. And then second, um, the, uh, I want you to, to realize the importance of sharing the gospel with your neighbors. Because a big part of the reason that I came to even know the Lord is because I had some neighbors who loved Jesus who shared the gospel with me. So uh, just to kind of throw it way back to the, to the early days, I was raised in a Southern Baptist, Bible-believing, KJV-reading, exclusively uh, home, okay? And so we believed that other versions of the Bible existed, but we didn't know about them. We just read the KJV, okay? And so uh, I have great parents. They love the Lord. Um, they, were, uh, they did a great job raising us. Always was in a Bible study of some sort. Always was in church. Um, had a very, very, very deep spiritual Christian foundation that I was raised on. And for the majority of my brothers and sisters, that was really effective. And for me, it was not. I was kind of the black sheep of my family in, in some ways. So the, uh, the reality is I was raised in a Christian home, would have claimed I was a Christian because, you know, I, I didn't believe in other gods and I thought I was better than, you know, the average Joe. I thought I was a pretty good guy. And so I thought that's what Christianity meant, that that's what it was to know Jesus. And I, I ended up going through my, uh, my formative years up through high school just believing this to be true about myself. I went to church a lot. I read my Bible some. My parents loved Jesus. Therefore, I love Jesus. And in my, in my head, that equation made sense. So anyways, I go to college. And at this point in my life, I, I've been on some rocky ground with my parents a little bit. I was kind of uh, starting to come into my own. I was feeling grown, okay? I, you know, I could drive now, and my voice had dropped, and so I felt like I'd grown up in my house. And, and so I would, uh, you know, I just, I just left on some kind of rocky terms with my dad primarily, okay? Because I was always trying to, you know, knuck if you buck, and I wanted to show him that I was the man. And, and uh, anyways, I just had a lot of those issues. And going to college, I said, you know what? I, uh, I'm just going to kind of forget about this stuff for a while, like a lot of college kids do, and I'm going to just see what's out there. I'm going to experience the world. And, um, and here's the kicker to that, though. My dad is, is in law enforcement, and he is, uh, he's a pretty big guy, okay? And so he's not, he, I wasn't ever afraid of him, but I probably should have been. I mean, he's a, he's a pretty big, like, strong dude, and he's in law enforcement. And so I, I do remember him telling me, listen, if I ever catch you doing anything illegal, Okay, that was like the kicker. He said, if you, if you do anything illegal while you're at college, I'll just bring you home and you just won't go to college anymore. Okay, and so I, my dad was serious about that. He would have legitimately done that. And uh, he gave me every reason to believe that. He told me multiple times, he's like, if I catch you doing something illegal, I'll write you a ticket. I don't care. You know, so he's very, very fair, big on justice. And I just knew that even though my dad loved me, probably because he loved me, he'd yank me out of that environment if I got caught anyways doing anything illegal. So I had to kind of keep it low key. The only problem with that is that my first semester in college, my older brother was my roommate, okay? And so JP it was on a different path than me. He already knew the Lord. He was kind of on the straight and narrow. I was on that wide path with all those other options, kind of uh, doing my own thing. So I had to live this double life my first semester in college to keep my brother from finding out about all this other stuff I was doing. Anyways, it was exhausting. And I remember one morning... As I, you know, still professing to be a Christian, still thinking that life is good, I was walking home, um, it was a cold morning, I was coming home at like 6 a.m. Uh, from a night of making decisions that I just, I kind of regret. 
And I remember I was walking and I was thinking, this thought hit me. And I, I look back on it now, I think it was probably the Holy Spirit just uh, working in my life. But I had this thought where I said, if this is all that I have to look forward to, having fun, you know, making money, getting my engineering degree, being successful, having friends, you know, having a beautiful girl to be with, if this is all that my life has to look forward to, I remember thinking, I don't want to live another 45 or 50 years. This sounds terrible. And I'm not a very melancholy dude. I'm not very morose. I'm typically the glass is half full. You know, life is good. But I remember I, I had that thought, and it kind of resonated in me because I'd never thought like that before. And so I started asking the question, perhaps there's something more to life. Perhaps there's something more that I'm missing, even in a spiritual sense, with this Christianity that I've grown up with. So all this time through my semester, my first semester in college, I had these guys who lived across the hall from me in my dorm. And they loved Jesus. And they were different than anyone I'd ever met. Because they were pretty cool guys, but they just were sold out. They were unwavering in their commitment to Jesus. And they were really intentional in making sure that I understood the gospel story. And essentially, they, would, they led Bible studies on my hall, and they, they took time to meet with me and to share with me, and they were courageous, because I was the kind of guy that would just shut them down. I was like, no, man, I've heard that my whole life. I get it. I'm good. Don't talk to me about it anymore. And the reality is, over time, the Lord used a lot of those conversations, and even the ones where I was stiff-arming these people to wear my heart down to a place to where the gospel actually made sense to me finally. And it all culminated one night. I remember I woke up in the middle of the night. It was like 3 or 4 a.m., and I just... I had this, uh, just this realization. I said, if I die right now, I know for a fact that I'd go straight to hell. And I'd never, you know, I was a good kid. I'd never, ever considered that before. I, when I measured myself against other people, I felt like I came out on top. But for the first time in my life, I saw my need for someone other than me to save me. And it was the first time in my life that I really understood what Jesus Christ brings to the table. The fact that he did live a perfect life, that he did choose to surrender that life to the Father's will to take my punishment. And so I, I, when I understood that, when I finally realized that, it kind of gripped my heart and changed my life. And so it totally changed the trajectory of where I was going to end up and changed the trajectory of my life. I ended up being able to lead one of my closest friends in college to Christ, and our relationship grew and friendship grew. And, and then he was able to impact other people, and then we both went on staff of the college ministry. And so the, the reality is, it was all because I had a couple neighbors who were faithful to do the hard thing, which was talk to the somewhat aggressive freshman guy who didn't want to talk about Jesus. And I think that, you know, in, con in conclusion, one, it is encouraging to know that God really does save people. He changes their hearts. It was a combination of those people talking to me and the Lord just working in my life through some circumstances. But I truly, truly believe that God blesses people in their attempts to share the gospel with their neighbors and in their attempts to share the gospel with the people around them. And in my case, it, it dramatically changed my life. And so I, I would encourage you, if you're not sharing the gospel with your neighbors, if you're scared to, there's, there's just... There's nothing, there's no attempt that the Lord can't use. And so I, I would encourage you to remember that um, as, we're, as we're moving forward. And as you're thinking about during the sermon even what your spiritual gifts are and how that the Lord has blessed you in those to, to impact the people around you. So why don't I pray for us? And then... 
I'd love to do that. All right, let's pray. Father God, you're so good to us, and you you give us so much, and you, you have blessed us just with, with your son, primarily. And God, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that the gospel impacts all people. God, that the truth of Jesus is not limited to a certain type of person or a certain uh, age of person, God, but you come and you rescue people in all different phases of life, regard, regardless of, of brokenness, regardless of, um, God, regardless of even them running away from you like I was when I was in college. And God, I just thank you that you're a God who rescues. And God, so many of our neighbors are like that. God, they're people who are far from you. They're people who need to be rescued. And God, you chose to use your people as a medium to bring the gospel to our neighbors. God, I thank you for that higher calling in life, for that higher purpose in how I live and how I interact with the people around me. And I pray, God, that my brothers and sisters in here, God, would, would acknowledge that if they haven't, God, and would give themselves fully to this idea of bringing the gospel to the people that the Lord has placed in our lives. I'm a big believer of that. I'm so thankful that, the, that Charlie Sprouse and Brendan Bradley, God, were faithful to bring the gospel to me uh, when I was a freshman. And so, Lord, we thank you just for this morning. We pray you bless Luke as he preaches. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. And he's a communicator. And he's good at that. He's good at everything. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate you, brother. Hey, if you have your Bible or a device that you're using, turn to 1 Corinthians. It's like Ben just said, we're working through, probably on the back half of a quick series we're doing on how God empowers his church to minister and serve each other. Just a brief look at spiritual gifts. And I've been getting great feedback from a lot of you. I'm excited about that. And I think this chapter, and listen, I know I say this every week, and so it starts to lose value over time. But I really, and I truly believe this passage is going to show us Christ much more clearly. I really think it's going to be a good morning for some of you and how you see how God sees you. Um, so 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to jump in and read it all the way through. Just 13 verses. It's a very short chapter. This is the word of Paul to this young, young church. It's the word of the Lord for us today. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we've seen the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Okay. You know, when I became a Christian in college, my, my story is actually very similar to Ben's. When I became a Christian in college, everything I knew about love would be confronted. I mean, the, the day before Jesus rescued me, all I knew about love is it was a currency that you could give. It was a currency that you could, you could receive. You felt really good inside if people loved you, and you felt like you were in a living hell if love was taken away from you. I understood love to be kind of mysterious. It would mysteriously show up when I would fall in love. It would mysteriously go away when I would fall out of love. I just, everything I knew about love, I carefully constructed from about a handful of Guns N' Roses power ballads and whatever romantic comedy was big at the time and whatever I heard in the high school locker room. I didn't know much about it besides that. I knew that my parents loved me. I knew that I loved my dog. I knew that I loved some food, and I knew that God loved me. What else is there to know about love? Right? Before Jesus. After Jesus, I'm just like you, if, if you, in fact, love God as well. I've watched my worldviews change. There was a radical shift. Right? Really a collision. I watched old worldviews clash and collide and mess and flip over my old ones. How to treat women. How to see money and success, how to handle my mouth, how to handle my time, how pride was hurting me, how humility was not something to push away, right? This is like living in the upside down. Everything was totally different. Everything was shifting in a way that glorifies God. If you went through something very similar to that, you got to know that we aren't unique. That's exactly what this church is going through that Paul is writing to. These Christians are experiencing this same upheaval of old worldviews and an installation of new ones. That's really what this whole letter is about. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it is about spiritual gifts. It's much more about how we serve and love each other. And we're watching it play out in real time with a church that is operating on an older operating system of how they saw things like, like love, like love. I mean, they were definitely powerful in their gifts and their services and their ministries. But because they didn't understand love very well, they were using these spiritual gifts, these spectacular gifts, kind of like power tools on each other, just blowing each other up. So Paul is actually going to show them something better. Now, the very first time I read this passage all the way through, I remember where I was, especially verses 4 through 7, that description of love that we've heard all over the place, you know, whether it's in the church or out of the church. And the first time I read it all the way through, it was written in calligraphy on this wooden plaque in a pastor's house above his toilet. I remember being in there using the bathroom, looking at that plaque, thinking, huh, it had hearts around it, red, red hearts, red writing, doves. I just assumed it's... It's how we handle each other. I just assumed it meant that's how you love the people around you, and that's how they were supposed to love you. I, I leave the bathroom, and I ask the pastor about it, and he's like, yeah, that's pretty much what it is, right? But listen, had Paul used that same bathroom, he'd probably wonder why that was there, right? Why is that passage there? It's a great passage, but why does it have hearts and birds and stuff around it, right? Up front, you need to know that this passage was not written 
for marriage, not directly, not specifically. I don't think Paul would be angry at the fact that this passage is used in a lot of wedding ceremonies. I don't think he'd be upset about that. It's just not what he had in mind at the moment, right? It's not what he had in mind at the moment. What he starts off talking about as regards love is how valuable it is, how important it is, how it's actually um, of more primal value than even the gifts themselves. I mean, look at verses 1 through 3. We'll run through them again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that's pretty spectacular right there, to understand all mysteries and knowledge. And he's saying, yeah, without, without love, it's not very valuable. He says, even if you have faith enough to move mountains from A to B, consider that. But you don't have love, then it's not valuable, right? If you give away everything you have, if you deliver your body to be burned, I mean, he is really going out of his way to show that even if you have the most spectacular, even the most impressive ministry around, if you don't have love, it's actually dangerous. It doesn't gain you anything. It's dangerous. You see, Paul must have been receiving reports of how people were blowing each other up in the church when it came to serving or ministering to each other. I say gained reports because you have to remember when you read these epistles, which is just a fancy word for letters, when you read these letters to the church, it's as if you're listening to one side of a phone call, right? We don't know what the reports were to Paul. We just see his answer to the reports that he got. That's what happens in all of his letters. That's what you're virtually reading. So what we can infer from what he is saying is that they were working off of an outdated idea of love that they carried over from their old world view, their old way of living. So he feels like he needs to redefine what love is. And he goes through this list in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritated easily, it's not resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it does rejoice with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a great list. Nobody in here really wants me to slow walk through that list of 15 things. Really? I know you don't. We all know what being rude means. You don't need the Greek for resentful. We all understand what these 15 descriptors are. What I'd like to draw your attention to is that this list is not natural to us. It's not natural at all. It's unnatural. I could even make the case it's supernatural, this list. Ever since we entered this world, we have wanted things our way. We've wanted things our way. No one in here likes it when their plans are interrupted or slowed down or inconvenienced or delayed or stopped. Even the slightest inconveniences, they make us irritated, don't they? Traffic jams, long lines, buffering symbols. I mean, if my daughter was in here, she could tell you. I take her to school every morning. I drive across town, and I sound pretty much the same in every single one of those moments. I'm like, you see this guy? You see this guy? Listen, when you drive, that is illegal. That's a ticket right there. You could hear, you could hear me rising up inside. I get so irritated, so resentful of how they're driving. <laughs> and I know they're doing the same thing to the person in front of them. Or how about YouTube? Have you enjoyed how they're doubling down on their commercials now, right? You watch a video, it's twice as many commercials. It's not your imagination. They're doing that to you on purpose, right? It irritates me how easily we are irritated, how easily I could resent something. It's just my nature. It's just my nature. 
And then Jesus shows up and changes our nature, right? And what seems unnatural in a list like this becomes our new natural by his power, by his Holy Spirit. See, love, love is different than what society has told you. It's different from how I grew up understanding love. Love is an affection. It's a real feeling, and it's also a committed action. It requires sacrifice for people who are unlovely, who people that seem like they don't deserve it. That's, that's what real love is. It's both a resolved action and it's a genuine feeling. It's both. I, I'm just saying it because I'd like to end the mythology that love is just about action and it doesn't even matter if you have any feelings. Or it's just about feelings and it doesn't even really matter if you have any action. Love is more than feelings. It's more than affections, but it's not less. It's not less than that. I mean, God wants your affection he, want, he wants your love and your feelings to be ignited for him, for those around you. He doesn't want that to be obligated, right? But a genuine affection, a genuine feeling, when it's mingled with joy, well, that, that yields committed action, sacrificial action for unlovely people, right? So the cultural question that we have to answer, because we are in the church, and it's a real question, is, is it possible to love someone deeply without being a Christian? Is that possible? And I'd say yes, but there's limits on it. You can love someone deeply without being a Christian, but only if the object is lovely enough and only if the sacrifice on your part is not too sharp. That's when we can do that. I mean, for instance, without Jesus, a mom will love a, a kid, right? even if it's this kid's going wayward, because this child is, what, beautiful, lovely in the mom's eyes. So she's willing to sacrifice. She's willing to do that. Probably more than the same mom would be able to do for an ex-husband, right, who's acting unlovely. Probably not willing to sacrifice near as much in that situation. I mean, there are couples who hate Jesus and love each other. Right? But even this love will have limits. It'll be determined by the lovability of the other, and the sacrifice being called for. That's why when you see couples that don't love Jesus, but they've been married for 50 years, all that tells you is that the pain that they've experienced because of the other in the marriage has not exceeded their limitations. They have the limitations, they just haven't been exceeded yet. I mean, this is why society, this is why we fall in and out of love so quickly. We have limits, and they get exceeded. This is why divorce is just as high in the church as it is outside of the church. Someone has become less lovely. Sacrifice has gotten too expensive. This is actually the same reason that society would try to convince you that some people are not worthy of love at all. Murderers, child molesters, terrorists, other villains. They're not worth it. They have lost all lovability, so they get zero sacrificial love. Right? Society would convince us that love means being nice and not offending anybody. To not screw up the good vibe in the room, basically. I mean, even the Bible says, by the way, that discipline, good discipline, won't feel like good vibes in the moment. It won't feel like it. This is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 11. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Earlier, he says that God disciplines his kids. He loves his kids. But the world would say that love doesn't look like it's loving because it's, it's making things uncomfortable. It's making things difficult. This 
cultural carryover is why we struggle with hard conversations with people. You've been in that moment where you know you need to have a hard conversation with somebody. It's already hard enough. Trying to find the place to start a hard conversation can be kind of be difficult, especially when everything feels like it's going really well. Like everyone's laughing and the mood is really bright and shiny in the room. You're like, ah, I don't want to, I don't want to seem unloving. I don't want to say the hard thing. I don't want to do the hard thing. It's why some of us struggle with disciplining our kids. It feels like we're being mean when we do it. It feels like we're being mean. To say, to do hard things can feel unloving. Let me ask you, when it comes to what you've learned about love in your life, how much of what you know have you pulled over from your last life, your life before Jesus, your life without Jesus? I mean, what determines who you love? What, what is it and why? Who is it that you have fallen out of love with? Who is it that you have stopped Loving. Who has exceeded your limitations, I guess, is another way of saying it. Because here's the truth. If we are not crafted to love others by the frame of the gospel, the good news of God for mankind, if we are not framed to love according to that gospel, then we are pulling our definition of love from society. That's where we're getting it, right? And society doesn't do a very good job with love. I mean, it's just middle school brilliance, and that's probably being mean to middle school, in all honesty. I mean, if broken humanity needs anything, it needs a better way to love. What we call love without Jesus is just an imposter. It's an imposter. Because as soon as it gets difficult, it will bail. So God, in his brilliance, he doesn't just teach us what love is. He doesn't just teach us how to love. He actually shows us. It is the gospel story. He shows us. It's not theory. It's not theory to him anyway. We read this in 1 John It'll be up on the screen. I'm going to be in chapter 4. I'll read it to you. If you're not there, you can look at it up on the screen. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, John says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son in to the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We also ought to love one another. You see, the gospel reveals that God has no limitation on his love. He has taken society's definition and he has blown it up. There's no limits on his love. The gospel shows that God in his love for us finds us when we are villains and unlovely, and he sacrifices as he lays a love upon us with zero limits. It's a sacrificial love. Finding us at our worst. I think that's the most fascinating part of God's love for you and me is when he loves us. Right? Because sometimes, some of you, you probably look in the mirror and you think, yeah, I'm pretty lovable right now. I'm a pretty lovable person. I mean, let's be serious. It's easy to like a person like me right now, Right? But that's not when God finds us. Romans 5, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It, this is what it means. It's not just, I mean, he finds you when you were your most villainous, your, your worst, your worst mood on your worst day, when you were the deepest villain, and that is when he says, I love you. I love you. 
Some of us should just love these passages. Some of us do, and you should. I mean, they communicate peace to a restless soul that knows that it's unlovely, right? And that's why some of you, when you maybe meditate on passages like this, you feel like you're the best version of yourself. You feel more integrated. It's like your soul can take a deep breath when you read passages like this. Because if these passages are true, then not only does God love us in our bad moods and on our bad days, but he pursued us when we were at our worst. This is what that means. It would be one thing if God were to say, look at you misbehaving. Look at you misbehaving. What a poor performance from you right now, right? On this this special little moment and this bad little day you're having. Hey, but listen, I love you all the same. Couldn't love you anymore. That would be one thing. That would be one thing, and that would be grace to us. That would be miraculous love towards us. What he actually does is looks at the totality of all of our worst temper tantrums and our worst moments, on our worst days, in our worst season. He adds them all together. Stuff you've done, stuff you didn't do, stuff you didn't even know that you did or didn't do. Everything, the totality of everything that would make us a villain. And with all of it in view at that time says, I love you, could not love you less, and I could not love you more. That is something totally different. That might be all some of you even need to hear today, right, is that God loves you in that way, in that shape, in that form, that at your worst, he could not have a bigger smile on his face. His love is limitless, and it does not depend on how lovely you are. He sees you through a smile. When he considers you, and he does, when he thinks deeply upon you, he's doing such through a gentle smile. He's excited about you. Some of us, however, we don't like these passages very much. And before we allow God to get close to us, to love us, we want to clean ourselves up. We want to make ourselves more lovable. That's what we want to do. So we don't really find that rest that these passages are supposed to deliver to us. We feel restless. That, that restlessness, by the way, it's not a new thing. I mean, it's about as cutting edge as your Old Testament that you have in your hand. I mean, if you go all the way back to ancient Israel, you would have God worshipers that whenever they had enough sin racked up in their mind, they would take an animal, sometimes a small animal, sometimes a big animal, but an animal that needed to look perfect, at least from the exterior, and they would take this said animal, whatever the animal was, whatever they could afford, and they would march this animal right down a very long walk to the temple, find a priest, deliver over this animal that wasn't free for them, by the way, and this priest would immediately take that animal and destroy it. Sometimes sprinkle blood. You know, it'd be this, this gross affair. There'd be smoke everywhere and everything like that. I mean, it's just like you're thinking in your head. It's probably a little bit what it looked like. And then they would leave this temple and then walk back home clean. All those sins were taken away. But for how long? I mean, seriously, like six seconds? How long does it take you to sin? Right. How long does it take to act like a villain again? I mean, this whole system begs for a better sacrifice, doesn't it? When you read your Old Testament, you think in your mind, there's got to be a better way. That's what you're supposed to be asking yourself. There, there's got to be a better way, right? I mean, there's got to be a better way to do the priest thing, a better way to clean sins off, a better way to become lovable. There's got to be a better way. I always imagine what it might sound like in the living room of these God worshipers. They were probably saying, there's got to be a better way to do this. I mean, this is expensive, and it's gross, the blood and the smoke and the screeching. I mean, it's just, it's odd. It's a bit of a treadmill when you think about it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't even get halfway home, and I'm already feeling like I need to get another animal and go right back. 
It just doesn't seem like it's working. We feel rest for like a speck of time. I mean, we're just never going to be lovely enough to quit making this long walk, are we? That had to be something like the conversations they were having. What were they waiting for? Something better? Something better. And that something came in the gospel. The gospel is the answer to the sacrificial system because Jesus is actually the, not just the better priest and the better sacrifice, he's actually the last high priest and the last sacrifice. No more trips to clean ourselves with all of our obedient sacrifices. We stay lovable. We stay, that's part of the good news. That's why the good news is good news. It wouldn't be good for you anymore. We'd have to quit calling it the gospel if you had to do things to clean yourself up to look more lovable to God. We could call it something else, but we couldn't call it the gospel. The very reason we call it the gospel is because you stay lovable. You stay beautiful. You stay clean and lovely in his eyes. Yet there is a piece of us that resists this grace. And so what we do, this grace, we, we fight it so that we can clean ourselves. We want to convince ourselves. And I think we subtly want to convince God that we're okay to be loved now. Right? And by the way, you know that you're doing this whenever you have done something that you think to be impressive in God's eyes. Maybe you followed something you read in the Bible or didn't do something you weren't supposed to do in the Bible. Whenever you had that moment, if something in your head even thinks, even a shadow that sounds like, hey, I hope you saw that, Lord. I hope you saw that. Or maybe you know he saw it. I hope you took note of that, like wrote something down. I hope that makes us okay again. I hope that means I can show up and read the Bible and not feel shame in my heart again. I hope that puts us on speaking terms again. Listen, if you're doing that, you're struggling with this. The gospel's something else, but it's not good news. Not yet. That's also why if you do something you shouldn't do, you fumble the ball somehow, that's, that, that's whenever you tell yourself in your head, ah, all right, new, new vow, Lord. I'm making a new vow right now. I'm never going to do that again. What is that new vow, by the way? It's you trying to clean yourself. God, I'll make up for that. I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll prove to you, Lord, that I'm better than that. This shame-based self-cleaning is a sin. It is a sin it's an act of distrust in the work of Jesus. It's effectively saying what Jesus did is not good at all. That the good news isn't good news, something very different than the good news. It's actually similar to you being next to Jesus while he is on a cross, and then you putting yourself on the cross. Because the work he's doing, although good, it's not totally sufficient. It's not totally sufficient. After all, God's love has limits, and he only approaches the lovable. So you better stay within those limits, and you better make yourself lovable. And where God says his love is perfect, you call him a liar. Liar. It's not true. So what does all this have to do with spiritual gifts? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Because how we see love has big ramifications, I can't remember who said this. I think it was Tozier. It might have been C.S. Lewis. One of those two, both of them much smarter than I am. They said that the most important piece of what makes you, you, is how you see God and how you see that he sees you. How does God view you, in other words, makes you the most valuable person, that makes you the most holistically integrated, healthy person? So what that means is if you stiff-arm the grace of God, what that will do is it will have you stiff-arming and not putting grace towards others, right? 
You will only be able to have a gospel-formed love for others when you can see yourself being loved. If you can't see God loving you and embracing you the way he describes in the Bible, you'll never be able to extend love to others. You'll never be able to do it. If you refuse this conditionless love that God gives us, you will always put conditions on your love towards others. We're people of limitations. By the way, you, you hear this sometimes whenever you're talking to somebody that is on the edge, right on the brink of forgiving somebody. And let's just face it, forgiveness is an act of love. It's a, commi- it's, it's a committed action, right, that is sacrificial because you're having to lay some things down, like your right to be ticked off. You're having to lay that down. That is a sacrifice. And the person that you're forgiving is not always lovely in your mind. It's an act of love. It's an aggressive act of love, too. But sometimes when you're watching people wrestle with this thing called forgiveness, you'll hear the statement, yeah, I hear you about the whole forgiveness thing, and I'll probably get there, but, but they did this to me. They did this. Let's not forget that. You're hearing a limit being put on love. That person themselves likely lives as if the forgiveness that God gave them was not very expensive, was not very full, was not very gracious or thorough. Listen, if you want to love others without limitation, like Jesus loves people without limitation, you will need a clear view of what the gospel has done for you. That has to stay on your dashboard. You have to see it at all times. How much God has loved you, right? I could see it working through my head sometimes when, I, when, I'm, not, when I'm tempted to not love somebody because they are not lovely. And then I remember, I was a villain when I was found. I was carrying the totality of all of my sin when God said, I love you. I'm tempted to not sacrifice for people, and then I remember what was sacrificed for me. I'm tempted to hold back, and then I'm reminded of how nothing was held back for me. Listen, this is highly unnatural. This is not natural, this kind of love. It's not natural. Society wouldn't understand it either. It is intrigued by it, doesn't totally understand it, because it exceeds their barriers, the barriers they set up. It it embraces inconvenience. It embraces risk and sacrifice. Enter spiritual gifts, okay? And as we saw last week and the weeks before that, some in this particular church, they felt superior because of the gifts that they had, and therefore they were not operating in love. Another chunk of the church, they felt inferior to everyone else in the room because of the gifts that they had, and they weren't operating in love. Love was not the power behind the ministry that they were executing with others. It was self. They were looking at number one in the whole thing, and which is why he goes into verse 8 like he does. Verse 8 in 1 Corinthians, he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith... Hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Whenever the gospel goes forward, we read that it's going to bring faith, hope, and love. Paul says those three, but then he singles one out. He says, but love, especially love. Why does he do that? Have you ever wondered that by reading this? How is it that God, 
How is it that God would see fit to put three things that we all put value on, faith, hope, and love, and then say, but love is the most important? I mean, we see a ranking here. This is why. Hope will eventually run its course. It has an end point. It, it, it's temporal. At the end of time, when our prince and our hero and our general comes back to rescue his church and collect us at the end of all ends, when that happens, you won't have anything to hope for. You will have it in hand. It will be in hand. This is why we see Paul and Romans say, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that, hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, which is what we are doing today. Today we hope. We hope in the goodness of God, in the glory of God, because it's not in hand. But there will be a day where it will be. Our hope will be fulfilled. It will be no. We won't need it anymore. Faith is the same. It has an end point. There will be a day where we don't have to trust that God is good. We will savor firsthand how good God is, and there will be no more need to trust. We just feel it. We're swimming in it. We don't have to exercise faith. We don't have to stir ourselves up. God doesn't have to give us a gift of faith to believe and to trust that he is actually who he says he is because we will be looking face to face, knowing as we are deeply known. It's a high level of intimacy. It's hard to imagine this about faith because we put it up so high as a deep value, but you need to know that it's temporal. It's temporal. It will fall away with hope. Love is different. He says love never ends. Love, on the other hand, has no end point. Both the affection that we have for each other and for God and the action will go on forever. And it'll actually amplify moment to moment to moment. It doesn't just stay. It's not a flat line of love in the forever after. It will increase and be amplified. Okay? This is what I mean. For all of eternity, love will be the appropriate response to grace and mercy and the splendor and the thoughtfulness that we receive in the gospel of God towards us. Now, there is a peculiar little phrase in here in verse 10, and it is controversial with some people. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on why these gifts don't stop when the Bible was canonized. And if that, if that sentence alone is confusing to you, then you don't have much to worry about. I'm just going to say that there are a lot of people in the Christian church that believe that miraculous gifts, any gifts really, they stop whenever your New Testament is finished, the New Testament that you have in your hands. Because it says in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And they're saying, that crew, they're saying that the partial are the gifts, like prophecy, tongues, leadership, hospitality, serving, administration helps. Those gifts, they'll pass away because they're partial. That's true. They will pass away. But your New Testament is not what Paul's talking about when he says the perfect. It's not what he's talking about. In fact, Paul had no idea that when he wrote 1 Corinthians, that it would even be a part of what we call the New Testament. He didn't think he was going to have to write a 2 Corinthians. <laughs> he was expecting Jesus to come back. He was expecting Jesus to come right back. Listen, and if this is a struggle for you and you think that this passage does teach that gifts stop when the Bible canon was completed, I'd be more than happy to talk to you after the service. We could work through it together. I do have a lot to say on the topic. I just don't have a lot to say right now. I'm not avoiding it because it's difficult. I'm avoiding it because it's not the main idea of what Paul is talking about right here. The main idea of what Paul is talking about is that, hey, it's not really gifts that you're breaking. It's love that you're breaking, and it's making the gifts look weird, and you're beating each other up with the gifts. 
You see, the gospel form love, gospel-shaped love is highly inconvenient because it means you have to lay down your right to be rude. We have to lay down our rights to be irritated, to be full of resent, to be full of hate and bitterness. It's highly inconvenient. Listen, I know some of you are stewing in here right now when you start thinking about people that you work with, family members, coworkers, even spouses, you carry so much bitterness and irritation. You're so resentful right now. Good luck with the holidays, by the way. Isn't that when it's on full display? And maybe you used to love them. Maybe you used to sacrifice. Maybe they were lovable in your eyes until they did that thing, until they turned into that person, and now they've exceeded your limits. They've become less lovable, less likable. Sacrifice got to be too much. Society would applaud you, by the way. They would say, you got to look out for number one. But then again, society thinks our cross is a foolish myth. In the work of Jesus, we see God coming for the unlovely at their worst, out of a deep sacrifice at his cost for our benefit. It's this Jesus-shaped love that we're talking about. Now, is that out of reach for you? This Jesus-formed, Jesus-framed love, is it out of reach for you? I will say, if you cannot enjoy the gospel and how much God loves you, then yeah, probably it's out of reach. You're not ever going to be able to get there, right? If Jesus' love for you is not shaping your love forever for others, then it's the gospel that you have a hard time believing. If Jesus' love for you is not forming how you love others, it's the gospel that you don't believe. And this might be a shock. I'm just going to say I think there's probably plenty of Christians in the city today and various churches that shouldn't even take communion today if their church does that. They probably should just abstain from it. It has to be a moment where you examine yourself. You do a very, very deep self-audit before you walk to what we call the table where the, where the symbols of a broken body and spilt blood are there for the church to take. Because there could be somebody in the room that you resent and hate. And if you harbor bitterness and you harbor hatred in your heart and you refuse to forgive others, all that has shown is that you have also refused to receive the unconditional forgiveness from God himself. You're denying the very thing that you're taking in communion. Communion is where we see and we savor how beautiful Jesus is to us as there was no limitation on his sacrificial love for the very, very, very ugly, villainous, unlovely. That's what it is. And we take it in remembrance of that. And then we walk forth from there, allowing that truth to shape our love for others, even the unlovely. This is what Jesus means in John 15 when he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That communion table shows us how much he has loved us. Paul says in Ephesians to husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? How much did you love your wife, men? I don't know, how much did Jesus love you? Yeah, but she's acting, Luke, listen, you don't even know. If I were to go through my list, she's acting crazy, right, right. You've had some rough moments. Let me just tell you how Jesus saw you whenever he came and rescued you. Yeah, but Luke, you don't know how tough it is. <laughs> the nails were sharp, friend. The nails were sharp. We love as we were loved. First John, John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The only hope for us to love like this is to trust 
God and then die to certain expectations and demands that we carry in this life. I mean, I have to do it. My need for a life with no inconveniences, that's got to go. It's got to die. My demand for everyone to operate on my schedule, it's got to die. My demand that people satisfy my needs and stop irritating me must die. My need for others to earn my love by being lovable in my eyes, that's got to go. Such is Christian love, so goes the gospel, so goes our lives. So there's plenty of room for us to repent in a passage like this on gifts of all things, right? Plenty of room. If you love Jesus, this passage is inviting you to audit how you love. How you love. It invites you to crucify this list of demands that you put on others. As Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls us, he does bid us to come and die. Right? So there's a lot of room for us to turn. But there's a lot of room to celebrate in a passage like this too. A lot of room to celebrate, right? Paul says in this passage that there will be a time where we see face to face, okay? Can't just cruise right over that. By the way, that phrase is in your Bible almost two dozen times. Every time it's used, it's talking about the highest of intimate interactions between two parties. That's actually how God describes his interaction with Jacob and with Moses and with you, face to face, right? When history melts away and linear time loses all meaning, as do tears and shame and isolation and loneliness, you will see a heroic rescuer face to face, and you will experience an intimacy that you cannot comprehend today, yet it will increase every moment for eternity. This is how Sam Storm says it. I cannot say it better. He says, there will not be in heaven a one-time momentary display of God's goodness, but an everlasting, ever-increasing infusion and impartation of divine kindness that intensifies with every passing moment. Heaven is not one grand momentary flash of excitement followed by an eternity of boredom. That's what society sees it as. Hey, good news, you're not going to hell. Bad news, here's a harp in a cloud. It's going to be like that for eons. Boredom. It's not going to be like that. He says, there will be a new episode of divine grace every day, a new revelation uh, every moment of some unseen aspect of the unfathomable complexity of divine compassion, a new and fresh disclosure of an implication or consequence of God's mercy every day, a novel and stunning explanation of the meaning of what God has done for us without end. That is fascinating to me. My mind cannot even begin to wrap around what that will be like. But love never ends. When this time comes, there won't be any need for hope. It'll be gone. No need for faith. It's not necessary. No need for spiritual gifts either. Those will end, as Paul says. We won't need anyone to point us to Jesus with spiritual gifts because we are looking face to face and knowing as deeply as we have been known. But until then, we have these gifts to point each other to Jesus and God's love for us through Jesus. We have these gifts. We have each other. We have the gospel to give us the shape and the frame for how we should love each other. And listen, I know that there's some in the room before we go right into worship You've never been able to give love like Paul defines here, and it's because you've never received love like this. You've wandered. You've looked for love. And what you've longed for is the essence of this gospel. 
It's the essence of this gospel. If your heart is stirred up by a description of the gospel, if your heart is stirred by how the Bible describes God's love for you, it is the gift of faith, very likely the Holy Spirit that is active in you, and it could be that God is just calling you home. God is calling you to him. He's calling you to trust and hope and put faith in his perfect sacrifice, even though you are found at your unloveliest. He loves you. Let me pray for you. And if that is you, by the way, I'd love to talk to you today before you leave. I'd love for you to just walk up and tell me, hey, I think, that, I think that's me you're talking about. I'm not sure I knew Jesus until today. I don't even know what that means. I just know something's different. I'd love to celebrate that with you and maybe help you. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray for all of us. And then we're going to go into worship. And just as I was describing the communion elements back there, listen, if you're a guest and you love Jesus and you're a Christian, feel free to take communion. Use that as, a, as an awesome opportunity to reconcile, right, to forgive, to show love in that moment. Listen, if you're here and you're just searching, you're not a Christian, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're just kind of kicking tires on the whole thing, we'd invite you to take Jesus and to consider Jesus rather than the table. But no matter what, as you worship, as you sing, as you pray, as you hug each other, as you give, as you leave, as you eat together, as you fellowship, remember this. Just remember this. God loves you despite you. His love for you is not based on your loveliness. It was a limitless love he has given you. It was at a cost for him and is a benefit for you. You can't make him love you anymore, and you can't shake him loose either. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so good. Thank you for the good news and the fact that it's good. <laughs> not that it's just an upgraded version of the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. I'm thankful that we don't have to roll our sleeves up to clean ourselves so that you like us and come near us anymore, but that you come near us because of what Christ has done. He is the one that has rolled up his sleeves and has done something miraculous, that your love and your affection would be ignited for us. God, you were so good. You were so noble. You were so kind and thoughtful and so gracious and so kind that you would come so close to villains. And Lord, that we could worship you forever. <laughs> the fact that we're learning things in heaven that we learn new grace. Every, every moment that passes by when time has stopped, we will still be learning a, a, a deeper knowledge of you. I don't understand that. How everything we know about you will be amplified and beautified every single moment from here forever. But I trust it. I trust it and I look forward to it and I hope for it. <clears throat> that hope won't be necessary one day. Neither will of faith. We will have it in hand, and we will see you face to face. We love you, Father. And it's in your name that we pray and we worship. Amen.